So, Resurrection Sunday. Here we are, right? I mean, that's like the final stretch. Sunrise, breakfast. Now, I think it's breakfast that's really done y'all in this morning. It wasn't getting up early. It was eating all that food. So, I'll do I'll do a few checks here and there to make sure everybody's awake. But as we start this message this morning, I want to I want to ask you a question, and and this is a I think a pretty penetrating question, and I don't think it calls for a quick answer. What is most important to you? Now that's again that's that's not something I don't think you can just answer off the cuff. I think you got to think about it, and I think it could be a lot of different things. What's most important to you? Maybe it's a job, a home, a person, some people, an ideal or an idea, a toy. I don't know. It could be a lot of different things. What is most important to you? And I know that's kind of hard to drill down and think about, especially when you're so sleepy, right? Don't make me think. I'm digesting. But I know when we talk about things like that, something pops in your head, right? You're just kind of like, well, there's that, maybe that, maybe that. Names, faces, places, memories, whatever. And I think it's important. I think it's good and important to evaluate things like this. It helps us to see what our priorities are. Helps us to put things in their proper place. And I also know that if you're like me, it's all too common to realize that those priorities are out of line, out of order, not really where you want them to be. Well, on a day like today, Resurrection Sunday, let other people call it Easter. It's not what this is about. This is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're like, well, that's what Easter's about. Is it? Maybe. But on a day like today, Resurrection Sunday, I think it's good to look at and to even evaluate what is most important and why. So we can feel guilty and beat ourselves up? No. But rather, hopefully, to reset our priorities to know what we should be focused on for our good, for the good of those around us, and for the glory of God, chiefly and primarily. We recited our mission statement this morning. That's our way of saying what's most important to us as Providence Bible Church. We said equipping and mobilizing the saints to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's most important to us as a church. And is there a part of that statement that's more important than the rest of it? Eh, Not really. But I do want us to look at one particular word in that statement this morning. And that word is gospel. In the mission statement, the gospel is what we want to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with. Well, obviously that makes it a pretty big part of the whole goal and purpose of who we are and what we want to do as a church. And hopefully we know what it is. What is the gospel? Do we really know? Is it another one of those old, old stories that we hear and we don't really feel the full import of? Do we know the full scope of what the gospel is, how it should impact us. Do we remember, drawn back to the earlier service, do we remember the gospel and its power? Well, fortunately, the Bible makes the gospel very plain. You don't have to wonder what the gospel is. The Bible makes it very plain. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's see what the Bible says about this most important Subject, and we're going to reread what I read before the Lord's table, which is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And if you would, to help wake you up, and because we want to reverence the Word of God, would you stand if you're able? 
as we read the holy, precious, powerful Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary... I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Let me pray. God, help us to reverence and receive this most important message this morning. Not important because I'm saying it, but most important because you've already said it and you said that it is of first importance. Help us to be clear in our understanding Help us to be clear in our response to what you are about to say to us through your word. We need your help, Holy Spirit, and we welcome it now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Or you can stand up if it's going to keep you awake, whatever you want to do there. That'll be funny. So we're going to work through this passage kind of like we normally do with our passages on Sunday morning. It's be a little different, a little quicker through the passage, and we want to see what is most important. And in the process, see if we line up with what's most important in our individual life and in our corporate life. And if there are those of you here this morning who are not familiar with the claims of Christ, with what the gospel truly is, you're in luck. Because the Holy Spirit lays it out incredibly plain to us this morning. So let me set the stage for the context of our passage today. This letter, 1 Corinthians, was written by Paul, who most people know as the Apostle Paul. The Apostle is not his first name, by the way. That's just his title. He was a Jew who was one of, who was one of the premier religious leaders of his day. He was part of a Jewish sect called the Pharisees. And if you've been around the Bible long enough, you've heard that phrase, that word a lot. The Pharisees were the most religious of the most religious people of their day. They were the creme de la creme. And Paul was like the valedictorian of the Pharisees. He was like first in his class. He was like teacher's pet. And he was a better Pharisee than all the other Pharisees. Well, when Jesus was born and lived his life, Jesus gathered a group of guys together and he called them his disciples. Yeah, let's interact some, okay? That'll help. Everybody pull your mouth. So Jesus called this group of guys and he called them his disciples and apostles. He had disciples and he tapped 12 who he called apostles. And then after Jesus was dead, buried, resurrected, and gone, ascended back to heaven, His disciples started telling everybody about Him and what He had done, what He had taught. Well, this was not popular with the Pharisees who didn't really like Jesus anyway because Jesus beat on them pretty much His whole public ministry. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount here on Sunday morning and over and over and over again. He's like, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. Don't be like the hypocrites. Well, that's who Jesus was talking about. They were very religious on the outside, but inside, not so much. So the Pharisees didn't like what the disciples of Jesus were teaching. So Paul, being a Pharisee, really the Pharisee, was going around trying to take those who followed Jesus' teaching to jail. And even at times, arranging for them to be killed. 
If you read the story of Stephen in the book of Acts being stoned, it was Saul, who was also called Paul, who was there watching over the coats of the people who were throwing rocks at Stephen. And he was in hearty agreement with what they were doing to Stephen. Stephen, who was a disciple of Jesus. So this Saul, Paul guy didn't like what Jesus was about, didn't like what his disciples were teaching. Well, fast forward a little. And Saul, again, Saul is called Saul and Paul in the Scripture. He's going to a place called Damascus to have some of Jesus' followers arrested. He's got letters from the high-ranking people in Jerusalem saying, arrest anybody who is committed to Jesus, who is part of the way, is what they called it. So he's on his way to Damascus to have people arrested for following Jesus. And again, this is after Jesus was gone. On his way to Damascus, Jesus who had been dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, met Paul on the road. Paul was instantly changed and became a follower of Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a minute. He would go on to do extensive missionary work, preaching about how Jesus had died and come back to life, which made it possible for people to be forgiven of their sins and thus become followers of Jesus. More on that later. But part of Paul's travels took him to a place called Corinth. It was a metropolitan city, very sophisticated. And here he established a church after he preached and people believed what he was preaching about Jesus. So the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to them after he had left them to address some problems they were experiencing. And the Corinthians had a lot of issues and problems, a lot of them. They're a lot like us. And in the midst of addressing these problems, Paul comes to what we're looking at today. And he wants to remind them of what's most important, which he says is the gospel. And here in our passage today, he explains this most important of all subjects. So let's look at it. 15, 1 and 2. There we are. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed In vain. So Paul had been addressing a lot of issues within the church there in Corinth in this letter. They had a lot going on and Paul had covered a lot of what was causing divisions in their midst. And after addressing things like whether they should eat meat sacrificed to idols, how to handle disagreements and lawsuits, how to conduct church meetings, whether you should speak in tongues or prophesy and spiritual gifts and all that, he addressed all that. And after covering all this divisive stuff, he comes to what should unify them. And thus, what should unify us? And that's the gospel. They could maybe miss the mark on some of the other issues, but they could not miss the mark on this. It was imperative that they were united around this. So he reminds them as their brother, I would remind you brothers, he reminds them of the gospel. Now the gospel, the word gospel means what? Good news which we'll cover more in a few. But it's the message that Paul had gone all through his journeys preaching. And that gospel was the account of Jesus' life and work. It's the same gospel that he speaks of in his letter to the Roman church in Romans 1, 16 and 17 when he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. So this gospel that Paul is referring to back in 1 Corinthians is still the very power of God for salvation. Listen to me. Everybody awake? If anybody is going to be saved saved from the wrath of God, saved from the penalty for their sins, saved in the present and into eternity, if anyone is going to be saved, it will have to be because of the gospel. He seems to be referring to that back in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, when he says to the Corinthians that this gospel was preached to them, which they received, in which they stand, and by which they are being saved. And salvation has three components. We have been saved, we are saved, and we will be saved. Not enough time to cover all that this morning. 
But salvation is from and because of the gospel. And this gospel has to be believed. He says they are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul preached this gospel, they believed it, and they were holding fast to that word that was preached to them. And this is what it takes to be saved. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not saved. If you can listen and pay attention, you're going to see exactly what you have to do to be saved. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering if you are saved. We're going to see this morning if you are or not. Maybe you are saved. But he says here that you have to hold fast to the word that was preached to you. So this addresses everybody in every stage of their spiritual death, burial, resurrection. It's for all of us. You have to hold fast to the gospel. And just so we're clear, the word believe does not mean to know the facts about something. Believe means to live by. It means to embrace and trust in something. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote another letter that became the book in the Bible called James. And in that book, he says, the demons believe. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there is a type of belief that does not lead to salvation because demons aren't saved, y'all. So you can believe like a demon believes and not be saved. So this belief that we're talking about is trusting in, living by. Demons, the cohorts of the devil, believe in God. And some people say, how do I know I'm saved? Well, I believe in God. It's not enough. Even the demons believe and shudder. So just knowing the facts about God or even just knowing the facts of the gospel will not save you. I've heard it all my life. I know it. Yeah, I know what the gospel is. It's A plus B equals C. Well, that equation is not enough to save you. You have to trust the facts of the gospel. You have to stand in them. You have to keep living your life with your trust in them. Otherwise, Paul says back in 1 Corinthians, you believe in vain to no effect for no purpose. In other words, if you don't truly believe and continue to live in light of the truth of the gospel, you have wasted your time. It has been in vain. All those early morning church services, in vain. If you don't truly believe. You were never saved and never will be if you just know facts. You have to believe the gospel. But what is this gospel that has to be heard, believed, and stood in? Paul's about to tell us. Verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There's more, but we're going to stop right there right now. Remember at the beginning that we were talking about what is most important. Well, here Paul tells us what is most important. In his efforts to unify and solidify this church in Corinth, he clearly tells what has to be believed for one to be saved. He preaches the gospel. And he says that he is delivering to them as of first importance what he also received. So there's no precursor or no information more important than what he is about to tell them. He had received it directly from God Himself, He says. He tells us that in Galatians 1, 11-12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's pretty important. That means that God Himself, in Christ, shared with Paul what was needed to make up this gospel. This is God's gospel. This is not a person's gospel. This is not a group's gospel. This is the gospel according to God. And this gospel is that Christ, and that being Jesus, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now what makes this important? What makes this the gospel? 
Well, this is the first part of what Paul says he received. And that is about Jesus dying for our sins. In order to be saved, in order to believe the gospel, you have to believe that Jesus was punished by God for your sins. Your sins. We talk about Jesus dying for the sins of the world, and that's true. But if you don't believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, you're never going to be saved. Which means you have to admit that you are a sinner. We'll get to that later too. Jesus was punished by God for my sin, for your sin, for our sins. We deserved to be condemned for the wrongs that we had done. But Jesus went to the cross and absorbed the wrath of God in His body. We sang about it. He was tortured on a Roman cross to pay for my sins. God punished Jesus for my sins. And Jesus died. Jesus was dead. God in the flesh gave up His Spirit. He said, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And His lifeless body was lowered from a cross... And that lifeless body was buried in a borrowed tomb. But he didn't stay dead. That's what today's all about, right? Resurrection Sunday. Everybody awake? All right. Resurrection Sunday is about Jesus coming out of the tomb. And he was alive in a glorified body. He looked like other people, but he could do crazy stuff. He walked through walls. He just showed up. They had the doors locked. He's like, hey, y'all. And he kind of came and went as he pleased. He could kind of like not reveal himself to other people. People walked with him, didn't know it was him. He's talking to them. They didn't know it was him. So there was something different about the resurrected body of Jesus, but it was a physical body. He ate fish. He said, I'll show you that I'm human. And Resurrection Sunday is all about Jesus coming out of the tomb, alive in a glorified body. And Paul says all of this was in accordance with the Scriptures. God had foretold all through the Old Testament what was going to happen when He brought His plan to completion. He said that the suffering servant whom He would send, Jesus, would die, would be buried, and resurrected. What we looked at Friday at our Tenebrae service showed us, that in, showed us exactly that in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 in vivid detail, foretelling what would happen. And that's just a small sampling of over 400 Old Testament prophecies that were directly fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says back in 1 Corinthians that it is imperative to believe that. That's not all. Verses 5 through 7. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James then to all the apostles. Now we discussed here on Wednesday night in the big kids' room that no person saw Jesus come out of the tomb. No human being witnessed Jesus coming out of the tomb. There were no human witnesses to the resurrection when it happened. But a lot of people, a lot of people saw Jesus after He was back from the dead. And that's important in our understanding of the gospel. Here in these verses, Paul says that Jesus appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Sounds like he's from Wyoming County. Cephas. Bo Cephas, right? Everybody's like, it's Hank. No, that's that's not him. Cephas is Simon Peter, who was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus had appointed as apostles. Peter had done what the night of the crucifixion? night before the crucifixion. He denied Jesus. He said, I don't know the man. Three times. So Jesus appeared to denying Cephas. And then He appeared to all the original group of disciples. Then He appeared to more than 500 believers. Then to James. Now James was Jesus' half-brother. And if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Him when He was on the earth, before He was crucified. They're like making fun of Him. If you're going to build a ministry, you better go to Jerusalem because that's where all the people are. James was one of those brothers, and he didn't believe in Jesus. So Jesus has shown Himself to Cephas, who had denied Him. He showed Himself to all the disciples who had scattered the night that He was crucified. 
showed himself to over 500 believers, and he showed himself to James, his half-brother who didn't believe on him when he was alive before. And the passage, this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't even mention the women that we talked about in our sunrise service and that the Gospels talk about. So listen to, listen to me. Over 500 people saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. 500. I'd say most of us don't know 500 people. You might know about them. But to show yourself to 500 people over a period of 40 days, there were over 500 people who could testify that Jesus was alive after he died. More than 500 If you steal some bubble gum in a store, which you should never do, and they take you to court, and they've got five people who say, I saw that man right there sitting in the blue shirt. It was him that took the bubble gum. I saw him do it. Let me tell you what. If you go to court and you got five eyewitnesses, your goose is cooked. Their stories corroborate, and everybody goes, yep, five people saw it. There's no doubt. 500 people saw Jesus alive after he was dead. That's a pretty good witness, y'all. 500. That's way more than this building can hold. And... Paul says here at the time of his writing, most of these 500 people were still alive, so you could go to them and confirm with them. Did you see Jesus after he was resurrected? Sure did. Saw him, touched him, talked to him. He broke bread with us. It was awesome. So when we talk about believing the resurrection, putting your faith in something like the resurrection, we're not asking you to blindly pursue a good story. No, Paul is establishing rock-solid evidence. And these Corinthians weren't among the people who had seen Jesus. Again, Jerusalem, Corinth. None of these Corinthians had seen Jesus alive after he was dead. But Paul was saying, i got 500 folks who can verify what I'm saying. If you don't want to take my word for it, go ask these several hundred other people. So people today, because we're real smart, you see, Say things like, well, maybe they were all conspiring together. Yeah, right. Anybody know Chuck Colson or heard of Chuck Colson? He was head of prison fellowship. He was one of President Nixon's hatchet men during Watergate. And he ended up going to prison for his participation with Nixon in Watergate. And he said this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. He's talking about the disciples. And they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, or put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. He says this, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? And he concludes this statement by saying, absolutely impossible. It's really, really hard to get two people's stories to agree, much less to maintain that unity. And when it's a lie or a hoax, it gets exponentially harder. Well, over 500 people could not have and would not have maintained their continuity were this a hoax. But it wasn't a hoax. They were eyewitnesses. And Paul encouraged people to ask them for themselves. So this gospel we've seen is about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then that over 500 eyewitnesses attested to that. But Paul now dials in on what was his most compelling of evidence for the validity of the gospel, which is his own changed life. Look at verses 8 and 9. Everybody awake? Come on. Hey, there we go. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
You see, Paul was, was not going to Damascus that day to meet Jesus. That wasn't his goal. He wasn't going as a seeker. He wasn't searching out the claims of Christ, hoping to be convinced that it was true. Paul was not a nice person, religious though he was. Paul was going to Damascus to imprison anyone who said they were following this risen Jesus. With hate and vitriol in his heart, with a passion to put out this flame of Christianity, Paul came face to face with Jesus himself. The book of Acts records that he gives this testimony more than three times, twice, three times. Let's look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Come on. And let's see it. But Saul, also called Paul, still breathing threats and murder. Now, grab that. Whoop, whoop. But Saul, still bringing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, this Christian sect, men or women, (laughs) he's not a nice guy, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Something happened to Brother Saul. Jesus got his attention, didn't he? The account then tells of a man named Ananias who was sent to Paul, Saul, to baptize him. And then we read this in Acts 9, 19 through 22. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, the very ones he was coming to arrest and take bound, man or woman, to Jerusalem. He's with them. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul, Paul, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Something happened to brother Saul, y'all. He met Jesus. And Jesus changed his Life. So immediately after getting blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul began teaching that Jesus was alive and was God's Son sent to save God's people from their sins. Now you talk about a U-turn. And it was this appearance on the Damascus road that Paul was referring to back in 1 Corinthians. Paul refers to himself as one untimely born. The word literally means aborted. And why was he one untimely born? It means that he didn't get to learn from Jesus when Jesus was on the earth. But rather, Jesus came to Paul after Jesus had already ascended into heaven after his resurrection. And Paul says that he knows he's unworthy of Jesus reaching out to him. That's pretty important too, y'all. He knows that he's unworthy because he, Paul, had persecuted God's people. Paul was not a good person who was doing good things so that Jesus noticed and said, Oh, Paul, I want him on my team. He's a good one. No, Paul the apostle had been Saul the persecutor. And Jesus changed him in a moment. And Paul could not help but testify to what Jesus had done in, with, through, and for him in that conversion experience. And it was convincing proof for Paul and for all who saw it happen. Y'all awake? Yes. All right. And then Paul tells how this has affected him in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Saul the persecutor became the hardest working apologist for the very gospel he was trying to stamp out beforehand. Paul would spend the rest of his life to the point of having his head taken off his shoulders, convincing people that this gospel that he was preaching was the most important thing in the entire universe. Literally. And he recognizes here in verse 10 that all that labor was not from him or in his own power. That's pretty important too. No, it was the very grace of God acting upon and out through him that mobilized and enlivened him. It's a very important piece of the gospel. Listen to me. It led to life change for Paul for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. The gospel became the very air that he breathed, the very fabric of his being. And he said that he relied completely on the grace that saved him to animate and motivate him from that point on. And that change led to praise for God, not praise for Paul. Now we elevate Paul in our observation of his life and work, but Paul was quick to say, hey, this is all grace. And the gospel, if it is to be believed and lived out, has to point to God and know that it is all His grace that made it possible. You brought nothing to your salvation except your sin. It was the grace of God that saved you if you are saved. And it will be the grace of God that saves you if you are going to be saved. Not what you do, but who God is and what He has done. Finally, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Here at the end of this passage that we're looking at today, Paul says it was not important to him if it was him or the other preachers of this gospel who get the credit. The other apostles, other people, don't care. That was not on his radar. The main thing, the most important thing to him was that they were all preaching this gospel, the same gospel, and as a result, people believed. The gospel was preached and people believed. This was all that mattered to Paul. He did not care one iota who got credit for it in the natural realm. He was not seeking applause from people for his part in it. He just wanted the gospel preached so that people could and would believe it. He wanted to make sure that these Corinthian believers understood that the main thing, the most important thing that they had heard was the true gospel and he wanted to make sure that they had believed it. That was Paul's top priority and he wanted that priority to be crystal clear to them as well and he wanted it to be their top priority as well. So I'm going to ask you again this morning. What is most important to you? And you're saying, well, I should say the gospel, but I don't know that it is. Let me ask you another question. Having heard the biblical gospel and what we just read, directly to each and every person sitting in this room today, do you believe it? Do you believe the gospel? Again, not a mental comprehension of some facts or a cerebral grasping of a historical timeline. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about whether or not you have entrusted your life, your eternal destiny to the truth of what Paul has deemed most important in our passage today. Because here's the deal. Every single person who's hearing this spoken, you are accountable for what you do with this gospel. We will, every single one of us, individually stand before God to be judged. 
at the end of all things. You will stand before God. I will stand before God and God the judge will judge you and what He will judge you according to is what have you done with the command to believe the gospel. The Bible says that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Nobody is exempt from standing before God and giving account for what they've done with the truth of the gospel. Nobody. And the bad news is that we are, all of us, every single one of us, sinners. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that glory that we fall short of is perfection. God's standard is perfection. Keeping His law, His commands perfectly. Anybody had a 10-minute window where they've done that? Probably not. A 10-minute window where you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself for 10 continuous minutes? Probably not. And you're going to give an account for your entire life. And God is going to say, perfection. How'd you do with that? We all, from Adam the first man until the last man takes his last breath, we are all far, far, far from perfect. So what hope do we have of not being punished for our sins? What hope do we have to cover our imperfections? Well, that's exactly what we've looked at this morning. That is exactly what we're celebrating this Resurrection Sunday. That is what is of first importance to Paul and actually of first importance to God. Jesus, whom the Bible calls the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, lived, died, was buried, and was resurrected just like God had said He would be. After He was resurrected, He showed Himself to be alive convincingly to over 500 people and He changed their lives. Much like He did for Paul, extending grace to helpless, hopeless, imperfect sinners. And He offers that same grace to you today. To you! And what do you have to do in order to receive this grace and be saved from the wrath of God for your sins? You have to believe. You have to bank completely on the truth of the gospel for your salvation. And you have to let God extend grace to you and change you from the inside out. We said it this morning, Jesus came back from the dead so that we could have new life, so that we could be born again to what Cephas or Peter would call a living hope. We have to be born again to a living hope. Paul says it this way in Romans 10, 8-13. through But what does it say? The the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, the gospel. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord that He is who He said He was. And you have to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Which makes this resurrection thing a pretty big deal. And if you do, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And conversely, everyone who doesn't, everyone who trusts anything or anyone else will not be saved. They will die in their sins and will be rightly judged as God's enemy on that last day. 
And they will be cast into hell where they will suffer eternal conscious torment for their refusal to obey the command to believe the gospel. Now you may be sitting here thinking, well, that's not fair. Or God must be mean or something. But listen to me, God is holy. And He cannot allow sin into His presence. He can't. So He will punish every sin that has ever been committed and ever will be committed. And He will punish that sin justly. He will either punish every sin by punishing the person who committed it or He will account the punishment that He poured out on Jesus as the punishment for the sins of those who trust in Jesus. Every sin will be punished. But will you be punished for your sins in hell or will you trust in God punishing Jesus in your place and praise Him in eternity in heaven? That's the choice before every person in this building this morning. And it is the most important thing in your life. Whether you acknowledge that or not. Whether you feel that or not. Whether you made your list of priorities out and it was up there or not. This is the most important thing. Period. So you can be punished for your sins or you can trust that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins for you. There's no third option. And maybe this wasn't the top priority of your life when you came in this building this morning. But it can be when you walk out this door this morning. The most important thing to you. Because whether you acknowledge it or not, it is the most important thing in your life. This will decide your eternity. If you are odd and live to be 120, that's a blip on the screen compared to eternity. We will all exist eternally somewhere. And understanding that and determining that is the most important thing that you will ever do. Either you will live in heaven worshiping God for eternity or you will be punished by Him in hell for eternity. And it all comes down, all of it comes down to whether or not you believe in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the proof for it, and the grace that is extended as a result. You are commanded this morning, every one of you, to believe that gospel. Nobody else can do that for you. Now we can talk to you and help you understand. We can pray for you, pray with you, help instruct you along the way. But that choice is up to you. The command is given to you, is given to you individually. Will you disobey the command or obey the command? Will you trust Jesus or will you trust yourself? Jesus Christ lived. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ was resurrected. Jesus Christ showed Himself alive to over 500 people. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven where He is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father where He is interceding for His people. And whether you believe that or not is the most important thing in your life. Let's pray. God, we do not want to lessen or cheapen the message that you set forth as most important in your word. 
Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised. And Jesus is alive and is seated at your right hand right now. God, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to breathe new life, resurrection life, into those who have not believed your gospel here this morning. It is your work, Father. It is your power, Holy Spirit. It is your sacrifice and resurrected life, Jesus, that saves us. Give us the faith to believe. We acknowledge that we are saved by grace. It is not of our own doing. And we want to be faithful with the command to believe this gospel. And God, for those of us who have believed already, help us to order our priorities around this. This which is the most important thing. And may we spend ourselves to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we store up treasures in heaven as we share this gospel, as we live this gospel, as we believe this gospel. Thank you for this wonderful, glorious, beautiful day. Thank you for the miracle of the resurrection. Now help us to embody it and live it out by your grace and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And just stand and receive a benediction to end this glorious day that we've had together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you all. Have a great day.